Lord Jesus Christ, we remember that in the Bible you spoke, quiet, be still, and a storm was stilled. You spoke, little girl, get up, and a dead child was raised to life. You spoke as you prayed a blessing and a few loaves fed a multitude. And so I pray that by your spirit we might hear that same voice today. Uh, whether it is calming storms, uh, whether it is bringing life, whether it is death, whether it is providing, whether it is spiritual famine. Speak to us through your word, we pray, by, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please do take a seat. It's fantastic to be in church this morning. Wonderful uh, for me to uh, listen to Chris and Dave just talk. I was so encouraged, so uh, encouraged hearing about the afternoon um, meeting uh, that's happening and the different beacons that are going on. If you've got a Bible there, I wonder if you'd be kind enough to look up uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 again. This is page 1220. Page 1,221, Peter chapter 4, uh, sentence uh, 7 to 11, or pull it up on your phone, would be tremendous. Um, did you read in the papers over the last couple of weeks of this Japanese couple? Do you know the couple I'm talking about? There's a couple in Japan, married couple, who haven't spoken for 20 years, uh, or, or, or have just spoken for the first time in 20 years, because their 18-year-old son, who'd never heard a conversation between them, uh, emailed a, a Japanese game show and challenged them to try and make a way for his parents actually to have a com conversation. It transpires, actually, it, um, it's the husband who's not spoken. Uh, uh, the, the wife has uh, carried on speaking to him. Uh, he got in a huff 20 years ago um, because she was spending too much time with their children uh, at the time. So he thought he'd communicate that to her by not speaking to her. In an interview, she said she didn't realise for the first 12 years there was a problem. So <laughs> there, there may have been some underlying issues in there. Now, it, it, it's comically tragic, isn't it? It's comically tragic. Uh, and yet it's an extreme example, isn't it, of, of the reality that many of us will know in our own lives, uh, wherever we are spiritually. I don't, I don't mind the label you've chosen to wear this morning. Everyone's welcome. Jesus speaks to us all. Um, but all of us know in our lives, in friends' lives, colleagues' lives, that there is pain, there is confusion, there is silence, there is anger in the very relationships that should be healthy and wholesome. The very relationships that we hope in our life actually are the ones that are going to be positive and build us up and encouraging and healthy places for us to live in. They're often the very relationships which are filled with silence instead of conversation, uh, filled with pain instead of healing, filled with anger instead of compassion and love, uh, filled with fragmentation and brokenness instead of being the kind of relationships that make us whole. And you know that, don't you? Because um, I know that. The, the wonderful thing about the Bible um, is the Bible doesn't whistle in the dark uh, when things are hard. The Bible doesn't wear rose-tinted spectacles uh, when it looks at the reality of the lives that we live. Um, and this passage, this paragraph that the man Peter wrote to this mixed group, some were Christians, some weren't, some were old, some were young, some were stable, some were in life which was all over the place. Right at the heart of this passage is just such broken relationships. Um, if you look at sentence eight there, do you see sentence eight? He says, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins, a multitude of sins. So he's writing to a group of people that actually the very relationships which should be wholesome and healthy are the relationships where there's this multitude of sins. That's Bible language for, for pain done to one another, 
for, for uh, rebellion, uh, which leads to wounding each other, for words spoken which have, which have really hurt. And if you've been tracking with us, which some of us would over the last few months as we've been working our way through this letter that, that Peter writes, you know that he's talked about some real, really important relationships. Um, so when he writes here uh, about these multitude of, of sins, these broken relationships, he, he's talking about family life. He's talking about when we fall out with our parents or our children, whatever the reason or whatever the mechanism. That's a relationship that should be so positive in life, shouldn't it? And yet many of us know the reality where that relationship is full of pain and full of brokenness. He talked a lot uh, about marriage and married couples in chapter 3. We laugh at that Japanese couple, and I don't know how much it's been exaggerated to become a newsworthy story, but it is a lens into the reality that marriage is very, very difficult. And many of us will be at a point right now, whether we're married or not, divorced, hoping to be married, whatever our situational circumstance, and we look back and we know the hopes and the dreams that we had on that wedding day are so very different to the reality that we're living today. Peter's also uh, talked about the workplace being in the kind of environment where actually you are not respected or appreciated, or perhaps you're on the other side and you know that you are that boss. You're that, you're the one, you're that boss. That everyone hopes they're not going to be assigned to work in your team or in your project because of the way that you conduct yourselves. And he's also talked about church life. Perhaps the very relationships where we feel we should feel safest and which should be the strongest and he's writing about the reality that sometimes we fall out with each other. Sometimes Christians can be really nasty and unpleasant to each other. So we're talking about some real nitty-gritty of life today. And yet this passage is filled with hope and anticipation that things can be different, wherever they might be today. And we're not talking about light and fluffy band-aid style wounds. We're talking about gaping sword gashes that really need some healing salve. He is full of hope. In this passage, there are a sequence of five interrelated and escalating challenges about how we can functionally love someone who has harmed us. Or, if we're the one who's done the harming. Five escalating steps which lead to a point that we can genuinely love someone deeply, deeply is the word there, even when they have caused us that wound, or even when we are the one who has wounded them. So if you're with me this morning, I'm hoping this morning's sermon will have a big impact in terms of you taking steps forward in whatever the relationship is you thought of, or in journeying with someone you know, who you know is in that fractured relationship, and offering something of Jesus' advice, guidance, and help into a situation that needs it. Does that make sense? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray again, and then we're going to look at these five steps. And let's just have a moment's quiet. And would you bring to the forefront of your mind, so I can cover it in prayer, the relationship you're thinking of? Is it your marriage or the marriage of a child? Is it in the workplace? Is it in church? Just bring it to the forefront of your mind and let us pray before we look at this. So, Father God, we come before you again this morning. And we are praying that your word might work by your spirit. That as we obey what we learn this morning, 
we might seek to be those who in our own lives or the lives around us can reconcile those broken relationships. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right, let's have a look, first of all, just at the motivation. Do you see the beginning of verse 7? It says, the end of all things is near. Now, that is, why, that is Peter's motivation of why we start this journey. What he means by that is he's saying, if you like, the last chapter of God's story has arrived. So this is your last opportunity to actually make the amends that you mean to men. When I read stories to the boys, just as a brain break for a moment, when I read stories to the boys, they like me to tell them when we've reached the last chapter. They like to know it's the last chapter of the story so they can get everything out of it. We recently finished Watership Down by Richard Adams. The uh, length of the chapters are quite erratic. So when I told the boys it's the last chapter, they didn't know exactly how long that would be, but they knew this was it. Does that make sense? Uh, That's what Peter's saying. He's saying, right, we're in the last chapter of history. The end of all things is near. We don't know exactly the page number when Jesus is going to come back, but we know this is the last chapter. There's nothing after this. The real story begins after this chapter. So get it sorted. Now, here's step one is sober prayer. Do you see that? The second half of verse seven. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. So the first step, he says, is actually that person who has wounded you or you have wounded, that person that you're thinking of or that relationship, start praying for them. Start praying for them. Now, that can actually be exceptionally, exceptionally hard. There's only one moment in my life as a Christian, a bit like Dave, I, I, I became a Christian later on. Um, so I was about 21 or something like that, early 20s. And in, in, that, in that time period, there's only been once when someone has wounded me so hard that I've genuinely found it very, very difficult to pray for them. The reason is, is because when I thought of them, my emotions took over. So when the name came into my head, my emotions, in my case, anger, but they might be fear or confusion or pain, my emotions took the lead and I just couldn't pray. I just got angry. All my prayers would be like this. Lord Jesus, I just pray for this person. Strike them down, Lord! Yeah. Yeah. Now, here he writes, actually, be alert and of sober mind. He's deliberately using a word sober, which means not drunk. Because when you're drunk on a bit of beer or a bit of wine or whatever, one of the things that happens is your emotions take control, don't you? You get into a scrap at three o'clock in the morning outside the nightclub because a couple of lads have had too much to drink. You make a daft decision, emotionally driven because of the drink in your system. And that's what he's saying can happen. When a relationship is broken, your emotions are bubbling away, aren't they? And you can't pray for them because your emotions take over. So he says, sober yourself up. So emotionally sober yourself up so that you can pray for them. So for straight off, step one, some of us is the biggest challenge this morning is the ability to pray for that person who has hurt you. I have to begin simply by saying, Lord, bless. Let's, let's call him Bob, the person I'm, I'm thinking of. His, his name is not Bob because he's not a, a man. So you'll never know who he is, right? And they're not in this church, and it's 15 years ago. Right? Let's call him Bob, right? I, all I could do is, Lord, bless Bob. And I had to stop there. Because if I carried on, Lord, strike him down! For quite a long time, months, I'm talking months before I could pray anything more than that. But you start by praying for them, but in a sober way, in an 
almost unemotional way, not, not allowing your emotions to drive it. Does that make sense? That leads to step two, a deep love, verse eight. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. As we start praying for someone, God does this remarkable thing and he begins to enable us to love them even when we should in fact hate them. So this is not in any way undermining or dismissing what they may have done to you. It doesn't make it nothing at all. But it gives you a Jesus-like quality to love your enemies. In Romans 5 verse 9, this is the amazing reality of Jesus' love for us. It says, while we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. He loved us so much. While we were still his enemies. And God does this amazing thing that as we begin to pray, perhaps over months, perhaps over years, for this broken relationship, this, this pain in our lives, amazingly, we begin to love them. Now the word here, do you see it says, love covers over a multitude of sins. Now if you're like me, that might make you go, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. They did a really bad thing. They did a really bad thing. Now, just to give you an example of this, I use this passage, again, with someone who none of us will know. Only a few weeks ago, I used this idea of love covering a multitude of sins of someone who had been raped about the perpetrator. We're talking about real realities here. This love that Jesus generates doesn't cover a sin in the sense of saying that sin does not matter. But it shows that God's love given to us is so vast and expansive, it can even make us love like Jesus loves us. Love our enemies. I remember when I was about 15 years ago, I watched one of these amazing BBC world programmes about, about the planet Earth. And I was intrigued as a 15-year-old to discover that under the oceans, there are mountain ranges that make the Himalayas look like... <laughs> Canic Chase. Huge, huge mountain regions under the oceans. But you'd never know that they were there, would you? Because the ocean is so deep. Interestingly, those mountain ranges still have an enormous effect on the currents of the ocean itself. But because the ocean is so deep, that is not the first thing you see when you look at the ocean. It, the ocean covers those mountains not in the sense that the mountains don't matter anymore. They matter intently in the currents of the ocean. The ocean covers those mountains in the sense that it is not the first thing you see when you look at them. Does that make sense? And this is the love we're talking about here. That we can look at someone who has done something really horrendous to us or someone we love. And we are not dismissing what they have done. Not at all. Not at all. But when we look at them, just as when we look at the oceans, it is not the first thing we see anymore. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So we go from pray, start to pray for this person. As we do that, there's this love, ocean size, not shallow or swampy or inch deep, or surface, an ocean, not a puddle. And it allows us to look at someone and not see their sin as the first thing we see. That leads to genuine hospitality. Look at sentence nine. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
Now, I have no idea how many months or years are in between each one of these steps. Depending on who you are and what kind of fracture we're talking about, it may be just a few weeks between praying for someone before you start to feel a love for them, before you're actually able to show hospitality to them. Other situations, actually, there is no wisdom in showing a hospitality to anyone, even if you feel love towards them, because actually are they trustworthy in your home or in your heart? Or maybe it'll take years. But it gets to a point that you can show hospitality to people without grumbling about them, whinging, bitching, complaining. And I don't just mean that their kids came running into your house without wiping their shoes on the carpet and they didn't even bother to acknowledge that it happened. I don't mean grumbling like that. I mean deep, like, hatred grumbling. And when it says hospitality here, it's much deeper than our English understanding of hospitality, which is give someone a, a, a meal at home. The word hospitality originally in English and the Greek root it's from literally means to heal the stranger or to heal the enemy. It's where we get the word hospital from. To heal the stranger, to heal the enemy. So do you see Peter's sequence here? You begin praying. God generates a love, which means you no longer first see their sin, but other things cover it. Not that the sin is not important, but you see other things first. Which then means you're in a position to begin to heal the stranger from you. Heal the enemy. That's what hospitality means. Next step. You could be at any one of these steps with the relationship you're thinking of. You might be right at the beginning of praying, or you might be a few steps along. Here's the next step. We've gone from sober prayer, deep love, genuine hospitality, and then ready serving. A readiness actually to serve them. Now, this could be years down the line for you with the relationship you're thinking of. Years down the line. But look at sentences 10 to 11. Each of you should use whatever gift you had received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do that with the strength God provides, so that in all things Jesus may be praised. So do you see the flow now? You've started to pray, then there's this deep love that comes and begins to, 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 to allow you not to see only their sin, but other things first. Then there's this kind of growing ability to begin to seek to heal, to be hospitable, to heal the stranger and, and reconcile it. And then there's this ability uh, to serve, to actually serve people, to serve people. Now it's worth just pulling into a lay-by for a moment. So will you come with me for a moment and just pull into a lay-by? Let's just stop for a moment. We'll switch the engine off and, and, and just open the windows and get a breath of fresh air through, shall we? Because it's worth just thinking uh, about what, what the Bible means when it talks about gifts. Do you see that word there? There's a couple of things I want to mention about that. It says, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So this kind of language may be new to some of us, but this is how God works. Uh, Jesus comes, comes and finds you. Some of you, that's happening even this morning. Jesus is finding you. And you come to trust in him. And then Jesus wonderfully says, right, I, by my Holy Spirit, I want to give you some skills and abilities and competencies. The Bible word is gifts, because they're things that are given to us. I want to give you some, some gifts. Do you notice that it says, each of you? What's the assumption there? It means that every single person who's trusted in Jesus, he gives a gift to. He gives everyone a gift. Here's yours, here's yours, here's yours, here's yours. So if there's any risk, you're sitting here this morning thinking, I, I, I don't, Jesus hasn't given me anything. 
Well, actually, no, he has. He has. You might not have unwrapped it yet, or you might be a bit fed up with the gift he's given you, and uh, so you don't want to use it. Um, uh, just as a slight aside, uh, Jonas, uh, this morning, he's our seven-year-old, went upstairs to get something out of his bed and discovered two of his Christmas presents from his stocking that somehow he hadn't found on Christmas morning. He came down so excited. <laughs> like, so excited. I couldn't believe it. Like, look at me! They'll tie you both about this thing. I found this one! So, anyway, that's an aside. But all of us, all of us, each of us have a gift. Secondly, the thing to note about this is how diverse they are. Do you see in sentence 10, whatever gift you've been given, or at the end of sentence uh, uh, 10, in its various forms, there's this huge plethora of gifts. Remember, Jesus was there when the world was created. Do you know how diverse the world is? Apparently, uh, there is over 6,000 new insect species discovered a year at the moment. 6,000 new ones a year at the moment, subspecies and little categories and all the rest of it. Well, Jesus was there when he made all of that, and it's the same God who's gifting us. Do you see the diversity of what he's about here? Now, some people, when they read the Bible, they, they look at a couple of lists of these gifts in the Bible. There's one in Romans 12, there's one in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14, and then there's this one in 1 Peter chapter 4. And they look down the, the different lists there, and they count the unique number of gifts, and there's nine. There's nine mentioned across those three lists, and they say there's just the nine. There's just the nine. There they are. But actually, I don't think it works like that at all. I think those lists are illustrative of the range. Does that make sense? Not actually a complete list. They're like the foretaste, if you like. They're like, um, sometimes if you go to a nice restaurant, you know, once I've booked, I should do it more often, shouldn't I? Once I've booked us into a really nice restaurant, that they sent the menu in advance, but not the full menu, just like two or three of the starters, two or three of the main courses, two or three of the desserts, to sort of whet our appetite. When we turned up, the, the menu was this long. That's like the gifts list in the Bible, do you see? I'll just whet your appetite with a few of the options, but actually it's this long. So just for a moment, we're still in our lay-by just for a moment. I want you to think about the gift that you may have from God. What are you good at? Let me give you some questions to help you identify it. What are you good at? Actually, better still, what do other people say you are good at? I think I'm good at telling jokes. <laughs> better to ask other people these things, isn't it? Uh? That was a token laugh, wasn't it? It was like canned laughter. But uh, what do other people say you're good at? Let's say you're good with your time, you're good at offering your time, good at listening, um, you're good at admin, are you, are, you, are you good at speaking, are you, are you good at playing, are you, are you good at picking up chairs and moving stuff around, are you good at painting, what, what, what are you good at? What do other people say you're good at? Second question to ask, what, what are you passionate about? I want you answering this in your head if you would. What are you passionate about? Now I don't mean Stoke City. Yeah, it's not a gift. No, 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 no. no, no. I, I, I mean, what are you passionate about doing? You know, what, what kind of energises you? What kind of gets you going, yes, yes, I'm loving it. I, I'll be honest, I've, I am perky ads this morning. I'm, I'm quite, it's perky ads. Right? I'm, I, I'm quite kind of full of beans. I feel pretty good. And I think I know the reason why, is we got a puppy on Tuesday. We got a puppy on Tuesday. Called Buddy, his name's called Buddy. It wasn't meant to be, he wasn't meant to be called Buddy, but I just discovered that's all I was calling him, so we thought we'd better give it his name. So he's little Buddy, he's a, he's a working cocker spaniel, and he's chaotic and he's energised, and he's, who does that when you've got four children and the last one's still in nappies, and Hannah's delighted, right? But, but <laughs> the reason why I'm perky, 
when I shouldn't be, because I'm doing the nights with the dog, <laughs> that's one of the agreements, you're doing the nights, so he's good, I had to get him up this morning at 6.15, that's awesome, isn't it? Um, it's because I, 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 all my life I've known I'm passionate about dogs, I don't know why, I don't know why, I just love dogs, I just love dogs, I just love dogs, yeah, what, I mean that kind of passion, does that make sense? You know, what are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? I, I, on a more serious note, I, I, I'm passionate, personally, I'm talking personally now, passionate about seeing people, seeing people one for Jesus. Passionate about that. Absolutely passionate about that. Passionate, I'm passionate about men. Masculinity. And discovering what it really means to be a, a, a true man. Yeah? What about you? What are you passionate about? So what are you good at? Other people say you're good at. What, what, are, you, what are you passionate about um, and, and want to see happen? Um, and then third question to ask is, what is it that when you do, you kind of see God results? Does that make sense? You kind of see God results. The, the, the outcome is a little bit more than the human equation should generate. Does that, does that make sense? Now this, this last one is, you've got to be more careful with it, because God matures things over time scales that might be invisible to us. Does that make sense? So, so we might, just because the result isn't instant and amazing, it's because God works at a different time scale to us. But somewhere in that, somewhere in the equation, that, that when you do it, the results seem generally more than when other people do it. Whatever it is. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying that that means our dog is going to be able to do the washing up and the hoovering and, you know, right? I, yeah? But let me, give you, let me give you an example. When I was a young Christian, like six months since I trusted Jesus, no religious background at all. In fact, no, I'll give you a different story. It's even better. Go six months earlier than that. I wasn't yet a Christian, but I was going to the Christian Union at university and there was like a mission week, a, an events week run by the Christian Union. And because I'd been going to the Christian Union meetings, there'd been this assumption I must be a Christian. What a terrible assumption to make. Of course not. I was still seeking Jesus. And the guy, Ken Cowan, Scouse, thick Scouse accent, who was the main speaker at the, uh, the mission, said, Alex, you know, you seem a... Well, he, he said it nicely. What he meant was a cocky little upstart. But he said, you seem an outgoing kind of guy. He said, could you give your testimony at the next meeting before I speak? I said, yeah, no problem. It didn't cross my mind. I was meant to be a Christian to do that, right? And so he introduced me, and I stood up, and he was sitting on the front row here. And I stood up, and I said, um, uh, so I'm not yet a Christian. And the guy's face, whoo, like And I just told my story of, you know, I told it very as it was. I didn't know you had to, like, be polite necessarily in church settings. I said, I took a fancy to Hannah. And, and, and Hannah said, Great, I fancy you as well, but there's a man more important in my life than you. His name is Jesus. I thought she was going to say her dad, but she said Jesus, yeah? And that began the journey. And I just told it as it was and said, I don't know if I'll become a Christian yet or not. Do you know what happened at the end of that meeting? Two people became Christians because of my testimony. What? What? And I remember sitting with Ken Cowan afterwards, who was still gathering himself, right? And I remember saying to him, I, I think I said something in essence along the lines of, your job's quite easy then, isn't it? Like, if I can do it, and I'm not even a Christian. And he said, Alex, you'll become a Christian, and it will be soon. And he said, you need to then sit down with someone and talk about the fact that you're probably an evangelist. I didn't even know what that word meant. Do I need to go to the doctor for that? I don't even know what that means. But you're probably an evangelist. 
and I spoke to him years later, three or four years later, actually, when I, I, I applied for a job with the same organisation that he was working for, and he was part of the interview panel. Uh, and he remembered the conversation I'd, I'd had with him, and it was him who who's wisely said to me, Alex, one of the things when you're understanding your gift that God has given you is what is it that God works in such a way that when you do it, the results are a little bit more than when anyone else sort of does it. Does that make sense? It has a divine sort of energy to it. It could be parenting. It could be administration. Um, it could be financial giving. God has given some of us an awful lot of money. That's his gift to us. Use it well and rightly. So just, we're still in our lay-by, with the windows down, it's getting a bit chilly now, isn't it? But we're still in our lay-by, thinking about gifts from this passage, just briefly. Number one, everyone's got them, each of you. Number two, whatever your gift is, various forms. So there's a huge plethora that are to be identified. But number three, the third thing to note, is actually what's most important is not what your gift is. You need to identify that, but it's not what it is. It's how you use it. It's how you use it. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. Serve others. Do you see that? We each have gifts. They are incredibly diverse, but that is secondary to how you use it. If your gift is money, how do you use it? To serve others. If your gift is an extrovert personality, how do you use it? To serve others. If your gift is a deep emotional capability and capacity, how do you use it to serve others? If your gift is you've just been given a strong body and a bit of time in your stage of life, how do you use that to serve others? Do you see that? Right, let's start the engine again and have a think about how this fits into our context. So we're back on the main road now, aren't we? Driving along. The context here is broken and fragmented relationships. He says, how do we begin a journey, escalating steps to see those broken relationships restored and healed? This last chapter of history, the end of all things is near. Come on, let's get it sorted. Number one, begin to pray. Months or years of just praying is the start. Bless them, bless them. As you do that, number two, a deep love that means not that the mountains of their sin against you somehow are unimportant, but that deep ocean, deep love means that when you look at them, it's not the mountains, the multitude of sin that you first see. Number three, that then has the ability to be genuinely hospitable. That's not necessarily about opening your home to someone. That's about seeking to heal the stranger, heal the enemy, reaching out to them in some way. Number four, that then means you can start to serve them. And do you see how practical now his instructions about serving these people who have hurt us is in sentence 11? He says, well, if your gift is a speaking one, make sure the way you use your words, sentence 11, is like they're the very words of God. So if you have a particular ability to use words, you have a choice, don't you? If you're good at words, you can really cut people down, can't you? You can really destroy people. You can set the rumours flying that wreck a reputation. If someone has wounded you and you are gifted with your words, you can destroy them with your words. The pen really is mightier than the sword. So how do you use your word gifts against the person who has hurt you, make sure the words you say are like they're the very words of God. Make sure they're the kind of things that God would say to them. Which means if they need to be tough words, you say tough words, because God does say tough words to us, doesn't he? He calls sin, sin. He calls hell, hell. But if they need to be loving words, they're loving words. 
no matter the words that God would say. So how do you speak about that enemy of yours? How do you speak about your marriage? How do you speak about that child? How do you speak about that word, that work colleague? Make sure the words you are saying about them are, are, the, are the very words of God. We can't always control what we think about people in our mind. We can't always control that, can we? We can absolutely control what we say about them out loud. Absolutely we can. But secondly, what if you're, you're not so, your gift is not so words, it's practical action. So what about practical action towards other people? Second half of sentence 11. If anyone serves, so it's a serving gift now, practical action, they should do it with the strength God provides. Because actually if you're going to practically serve someone who's hurt or wounded you, the only way you'll do that is if God gives you strength to do that. You won't want to humanly, will you? In your human strength, Lord, strike them down! That's your human strength, isn't it? So you need to say, Lord, help me to use my serving gift to serve with your strength this person who has wounded me in some way. So let's pause for a moment. We're coming to the end of our, our journey. We've done four of the steps, haven't we? We're in the context of the reality of, of, of the multitude of sins that can parade into our relationships and cause such damage. We could be thinking of relationships years old. You could be thinking of your, your dead parent. You could be thinking of a work colleague. You could think, be thinking of just a word said this week. It's a broken relationship. Some of us need to begin at the beginning. Just try and start praying for them. Soberly, not, not emotion driven. And that, that could just be such short prayers. As you start doing that over days or weeks or months or years, a love will rise that will start to cover that gigantic mountain of sin. So as you look or think of that person, you don't first see the mountain of sin, even though it's still very significant and important, but it's under the ocean. Third, you then begin to show hospitality. Seek to heal the stranger in whatever way is appropriate and right and wise in a relationship. You might need someone alongside you to do that. Number four, then, you, then there's this ability to serve them with words that are like God's words, with actions which are in that made possible by God's strength, they're impossible without God's strength. And fifth and finally, that process ends with Jesus being glorified. Do you see that right at the end of verse 11? So that, the grand conclusion, so that in all things, even in the dark, broken relationships of life, in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. And it's worth asking, well, why would Jesus be particularly glorified in relationships which are some of the worst in our life? And the answer is Jesus is especially glorified in some of those worst, most horrid relationships that we are the, the perpetrator of or the victim of. He's most glorified in them because as he brings that healing and restoration, that process through, it models what Jesus has done for us in our relationship between God and us. Because actually, as difficult as it might be to hear, if, you're think, if you have been really wounded by someone, actually the fracture and break in any human relationship is less 
than the fracture and break that existed between God and people. We absolutely, absolutely turned our back on God, hated him with every ounce of our being at some point in our life, whether you were polite about it or conscious of it. And yet Jesus amazingly came into the most fractured, most broken, most hate-ridden relationship and gave his life to see that reconciled. And so when we model that vertical on the horizontal in some of our hardest relationships, Jesus is shown in all his glory and his splendour because he's showing the world something like what he's done for us. Does that make sense? Romans 5 verse 9 doesn't say, while we were God's friends, Jesus died for us. It doesn't say, while we were only God's acquaintances and didn't really know him, Jesus died for us. It doesn't say, while we were God's antagonistic bully, he died for us. It says, while we were God's enemies, God haters, Jesus died for us. And in some of these horrific relationships, Jesus has given us the opportunity to display what Jesus has done for us. As we pray, as we love, as we show hospitality, as we serve, he will be glorified. Jeff's going to lead us in just one song. Or make, no, a couple of songs, Jeff, please. Uh, in one of them, we'll take our offering. That's for our regular attenders. Please let the bag pass you by. Through them both, uh, Hannah and I will be standing at the front to pray for anybody. Uh, Chris, if that was all right, if you could come to the front. I think Lawrence and Lillian, would you be able to just stand at the front to pray for folk? Um, and during these couple of songs, I, I would like many, many folk. You don't, it doesn't need to be a massive deal in your life at all or it may be a massive deal, come up to, to one of us um, and uh, just ask for someone to pray for you. You don't have to reveal anything you don't want to reveal. You can just come up and say, could you just pray a blessing? And someone will pray a blessing for you. Or you can come and just have a two, three minute conversation, perhaps sitting with someone on the front row, and they can pray specifically into that. So some of us will be praising and singing. Uh, many of us will be coming to be prayed for. Or we can stand in the gap for someone else. Uh, someone else we know who's got a really broken relationship and we can come to the front and say this isn't for me actually but I, I want us to pray for, for this person or this situation and uh, uh, whoever whoever's available and free at the front of that moment um, can pray for you there. Does that make sense as a thing to do? And that, the reason we're going to pray is because, one it's a good thing to do, but because that's where Peter started us, didn't he? The end of all things is near, the final chapter is being written, the last page is about to be turned, therefore pray. So that's why we're going to pray. So thanks, Jeff.